Heavenly Father, we do pray today that your name would be lifted high, that your will would be done in us and through us as your people in Ottawa or wherever we are today, that we would truly live for your kingdom first. Help us seek it first, and all these things will be added later. God, we pray that we would trust you, and as we come to your word, teach us now. Lead us into truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have never known living in anything but a broken and cursed world. And we're reminded of this every day as we see what's going on in our world. It's one horrific news story or traumatic experience or tragic death after another. And living in in such a broken world has perhaps led us to believe that if God is going to save us and then after death bring us to heaven, that he will have to take us out of this world entirely. And then we easily imagine that heaven must be so otherworldly and foreign to us that it then becomes unattractive or undesirable to us. But, as we've looked at God's word lately, we've seen how much of a misconception that is. That we won't fly off to some strange heaven, but that heaven will come down to earth. That while eternity will indeed be beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations, given that we will live in a new heavens and a new earth, there will also be some level of familiarity and normalcy to it. A glorified, redeemed, purified familiarity, but still an earthiness, if you will. Heaven won't just be some strange-looking golden and white city lacking colors or the beauty of God's natural creation, like some of our attempts to illustrate heaven might suggest, the artwork we see. Sometimes we imagine a city that we would like to gawk at from afar or take a tour of, but not somewhere that we would want to live, and definitely not eternally so. You may picture a glorious city, but one that could be rather cold and lifeless. No mountains and rivers and trees and flowers and animals and birds or anything like that. But if heaven is all about God, it is, and God is the creator of everyone and everything he is, then heaven is going to be about the creator and about his spectacular new creation. It will be vivid and vibrant and saturated with life. Perhaps nowhere do we see this better than in the final chapter of the Bible. In Revelation, we've seen heaven described as a throne room, as a temple, as a bride, as a city, and now we're going to see it described as a garden paradise. In Revelation 22. So please take a Bible, physical or digital, 
and open up there with me to Revelation 22. As you likely know well, the Bible, and human history for that matter, began with a garden paradise. In Genesis 2, it says this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. However, after mankind fell into sin, we were banned from Eden. As Genesis 3 records, says, The Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In Jewish tradition, it was believed that God then took the garden of Eden up to heaven. If that's the case, what we're going to see in Revelation is the return of Eden to earth. Regardless of whether that's the case, we will see the new heavens and the new earth clearly mirror the garden as a restored, renewed, elevated, and expanded Eden for God's people. I think these chapters can really help keep us from slipping into desperation or depression or despair over the state of the world around us. Because not only do they reveal a, a paradise-like future for us, but more importantly, they reveal and emphasize God's reign over it all. And the same God who will reign in heaven, in the new heavens, the new earth, rules as sovereign even now. Follow along with me here in Revelation 22, verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Where is it flowing from? God's throne. That's key. And where's it flowing to? And why? Because I saw the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Here's the big idea I think we're going to see here. That God's eternal reign from his throne, God's eternal reign will release extravagant life and healing. And God's eternal reign will forever be releasing, streaming out extravagant life and healing. It really doesn't matter how much of this is literal, symbolic, or both. The meaning is the same. God's reign supplies life to his new creation. Eternal life, abundant life, extravagant life. It's the river of the water of life 
flowing forth and watering the tree of life. And all this is flowing from the throne of the Lord of life. <laughs> the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In chapter 21, recently, you would remember, God said to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now, we see the spring is either located at God's throne or the throne is the spring. In the beginning, we just read, there was a river flowing from Eden to water the garden. Also, Ezekiel, prophet, was given a vision of a river flowing from the altar in God's temple, which brought life to everything it touched. Here, though, the river flows from God himself to water the new Jerusalem and the new earth. And don't picture some dinky little stream or creek. Those would not be a river of life. I mean, picture a, a rushing, rollicking, roaring river, raging wild, yet not dangerous at all. God's not just filling up a water bottle for us and handing it to us. He's providing a, a never-ending torrent of living water, an eternal supply. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Bright as crystal there draws attention again to heaven's foundational beauty. The waters sparkling and bright and clear, reflecting the light of God's glory. Think crystal clear tropical seas or sparkling lakes in Algonquin Park or Banff or the Georgian Bay, or, but better Right, the, the crystal clear purity of the water would have stood out more to John's readers, even to us, than to us, as they had a barely substantial water pollution problem in the ancient world. Still like many places in our world today in the developing world. So to hear of a river like this, bright as crystal, it sounded like paradise indeed. There probably isn't a better image to use for life, though, than water. If you think, if you're lost in a desert wilderness for days, feeling like you're going to die, and you came across people or civilization, what's the first thing that you would want? Shade? Food? A burger? Company? No, you'd be desperate for water. As much as you need those other things, you need water to quench your thirst more than any other necessity in life. We need water to live. And so, in heaven, God will give us what we need to live and to live eternally. He'll also give the new earth what it needs to flourish and bring forth more life. Not just biological life, but life in God. Zoe in Greek, not bios. It's life that does not decay or run down or end. Everything in this natural world now dies. But in God's kingdom, in God's presence, under God's reign, true life 
flows on forever. In this holy, heavenly city, the river will flow right down Main Street. It says, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. It's right in the middle of the action. The river dominates the scene. Life dominates the scene. Also, I hope you realize today that we can already taste of this living water through Jesus. Thanks to Jesus. As he told the Samaritan woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Notice, like we may only have a, a sip of this water right now, but if we have Jesus, we have his promise of eternal life. The water is right now welling up to that. Have you believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you tasted his living water? If so, are, are you excited about it welling up in you? Is it overflowing out of your heart yet? You can see the results of the life-giving river in verse 2. It says, flowing through the middle of the street, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So the river of life feeds into the root system of the tree of life. Of course, we already saw the tree of life in the original Garden of Eden. Apparently, Eating from this tree would enable people to live forever. That's what he says. Which is why Adam and Eve had to be mercifully banished from Eden. Think about it. Otherwise, they could still live in sin, in independence from God, and gain eternal life, which would mean living in the hell of independence from God forever. So it's cut off for a time. The only other time this tree shows up in Scripture is earlier in Revelation 2, verse 7, when Jesus said, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. However, you may have noticed something unusual about the tree of life now in Revelation 22. Where was it growing? It says, On either side of the river. It's growing on both sides. Meaning, the river is not a barrier to reaching the fruit from the tree of life wherever you are. Like, the Ottawa River might be a barrier today to, say, getting a haircut. But what kind of tree can grow on both sides of a huge river? This is one of two things. Either this is a massive, spectacular tree that spans the width of the river with trunks and branches on both sides, unlike anything we've ever seen, possible, or perhaps slightly more likely, this is referring to more than one tree. Essentially, the tree of life has now become a grove, an orchard, a forest. Either way, life, Zoe, flows 
and flourishes down the main thoroughfare of the new Jerusalem. Life is available, life is accessible, and life is abundant. It says it's yielding, or with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And we turn now from water to another necessity of life, food, nourishment. And we don't know if this means 12 different kinds of fruit growing from one tree or 12 kinds of fruit grown in the tree of life's orchard. Anything is possible. Whatever the case, it produces 12 crops, one each month. Now think about that. In our world, all fruit trees have a season. All plants have a season when their fruit ripens and is harvested. Here, the yield is not limited to specific seasons. It's always harvest time. It's abundant. And it's not just the tree's fruit that is beneficial for the flourishing of life. At the end of verse 2, it says, The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Essentially, the the leaves are used as medicine, like many plant leaves have been used over time. But these leaves, it says, are used to heal the nations. Now, this is really good news. Because right now, the nations of our world are incredibly sick. They've caught a disease far worse than any coronavirus or plague. They are, they've been deeply infected by sin and evil, which is always deadly. Just look around our world. Like Israel and Hamas steal most of the headlines at the moment, but there are ongoing wars or military conflicts in Syria and Afghanistan and Sudan and Yemen and Azerbaijan and many other places, resulting in hundreds of thousands of deaths annually. There are humanitarian crises that are hard to wrap our minds around. From the pandemic, yes, but also just from poverty and famine, unrest, natural disasters. The world is not at peace. It's not in shalom. It is so horribly sick. Like, think of the time, money, and effort that have been put into trying to make world peace. But it never, it seems like nothing ever changes or improves. Do we ever need healing? We can't seem to do it ourselves. The nations are raging, that's for sure. And ultimately, they rage against the Lord. Revelation tells us, we've seen this throughout, that God will judge the nations. Some won't survive that. Ultimately, God will rule over all the nations of the earth. But here, we learn much more tenderly that he will heal the nations. That healing has the final word. Which likely refers to both physical healing, as in no more pain, death, or sorrow, and spiritual healing, being in Restored relationship with God, restored shalom. God's reign, only God's reign will produce this healing of the nations. Joshua Ryan Butler says, 
Jesus reconciles the nations from the fragmentation, devastation, and alienation of sin to the glorious, gracious goodness of his very presence and through himself to one another. God is on a mission to heal the nations. And Revelation 22 tells us this mission is going to be accomplished. It's going to happen. I mean, we can see hints of its progress now in his church, his global church, where people of all nations and ethnicities are reconciled to God and to one another and brought together in a really worldly, unexplainable community and family. There are people in our church that I love deeply, and if that weren't for Jesus, we'd have nothing in common, but Jesus is enough. He's brought us together. Like I can go to countries in the world and walk in the door of a church. Well, not right now, but you know what I mean. And walk in the door of a church and I'd be welcomed in as a brother in Christ. It's a hint of the healing of the nations. Before moving on, though, just notice again the flow of life here. The, heal, the flow of healing in these verses. It all starts with God. And his throne, representing his reign over his new creation. And from God, life flows through a river, into trees, into fruit, into leaves, and then out into the nations, the rest of the world. But it all starts with God. It all comes from him. Water, food, medicine, all pictures of God's lavish nourishment and provision for his people. We can rejoice in this as we anticipate Andrew Wilson comments, we are welcomed into the abundance and vitality of a new and better Eden. The cherubim blocking your way have been stood down. The serpent has been crushed. The garden of love is open. The gardener has been preparing a place for you. may have a concern niggling at the back of your mind, though, because as glorious as a return of God's garden must be, something terrible happened in the OG garden, the original garden. A curse fell upon it, fell upon earth, humanity, which again we talked about, it's defined our existence ever since then. We might worry about this new paradise also being vulnerable to the same danger. But it's not. It's not. Look at verse 3. It says, No longer will there be anything accursed. No longer will there be anything accursed. Other versions say, No longer will there be any curse. Instead, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Here's what I think we can see here. God's eternal reign will replace the curse with worship. God's eternal reign will replace the curse that has so plagued our world with pure worship from a redeemed humanity. No longer will there be anything accursed. When Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed men 
women, the devil, and the earth itself. And this curse is one reason that the devil hates us and works hard to destroy us. Because God put enmity between him and us then. The curse is why childbirth is so painful. Why fulfilling God's mandate to multiply and fill the earth is filled with trauma. The the curse is why relationships between men and women can be so strained at times. Why there are power dynamics at play and rivalry where there should be harmony. The curse is why work is so toilsome labor-intensive on this world, why it's so hard to get the ground to produce food or to work any job for that matter. It's even why there are weeds that spring up in your garden, in your yard. And the curse is, of course, why we die. Why we return to the dust at the end of life. However, embedded in the curse in Genesis 3, God also left a promise of deliverance. Tell it when he spoke to the devil, he said that he would raise up someone who would crush his head one day. And we know that Jesus came as that promised deliverer, the second better Adam. He not only defeated Satan, but he took the curse of our sin on himself, dying as an accursed man before defeating death itself. So the curse can forever be removed because of the blood of the Lamb who now reigns. I hope and pray that, that you've placed your hope in his deliverance and in his reign today. There will no longer be anything accursed means, among other things, there will no longer be any evil to, to attack, to tempt, to seek to corrupt us or condemn us. There will no longer be any pain or toil in fulfilling God's mandates for us. We'll be able to work for the sheer pleasure of it and find it fully satisfying. There will no longer be any brokenness in our relationships. We'll live in perfect peace with one another. There will no longer be any death returning to the dust of the ground. Won't that be wonderful? It's, It's hard for us to even imagine life that good. Randy Alcorn adds, unencumbered by sin, human activity will lead naturally to a prosperous and magnificent culture. Christ will turn back the curse and restore to humanity all that we lost in Eden, and he will give us much more besides. And why will this curse be eliminated from earth? It's because, again, of God's reign, because of the Lamb's reign. As it says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of of God and of the Lamb will be in it. That's the second time John mentions the throne here. It's central to this whole picture. Every blessing that comes from God for God's people here comes because God reigns as king. 
comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You can also see here what we'll be up to once we're no longer consumed by cursed labor. We'll still be servants, but our new full-time work will be different. There will no longer be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. This doesn't mean we will only sing nonstop. This means we will live nonstop for his glory. People were created as servants of God to exercise dominion and care for the world. And this was, in a sense, their worship to the Lord. Their whole lives were oriented towards him. In eternity, under God's reign, we will again find perfect delight in serving him. We, will, we definitely will not get bored or tired of worshiping him, whatever the form it takes. How not? Sam Strong explains it well. It says, if the riches of God's grace are immeasurable, and if God himself is infinite, there is no way he can ever be exhausted or that our knowledge of him can ever be comprehensive. Therefore, it stands to reason that there will be increase in our understanding, joy, and love. There will not be in heaven a one-time momentary display of God's goodness, but an everlasting, ever-increasing infusion and impartation of his kindness that intensifies with every passing moment. Throughout the ages to come, we will be recipients of an ever-increasing and more stunning, more fascinating, and thus inescapably more enjoyable display of God's saving grace and kindness in Christ than before. We will we'll constantly be more amazed by God, more in love with God, and thus ever more relishing his presence and our relationship with him. If God was finite, passive, or unimpressive, then yes, worship would certainly become boring. But that simply will never be the case. It's not who God is. There will be a constant stream, a river of glory and goodness from his throne. Take some non-living water here. So you got another feature of God's reign that it's already hinted at there in verse 3. And that's that God's eternal reign will reshape his people's identity. God's eternal reign will reshape in a glorious way his people's identity. First, like we've already seen, we're going to be defined as servants of God. His servants will worship him. Do you realize what this means? It means we will be freed from the burden of living for ourselves. Like, I hate how much I live for myself in this life. And I have a sense that you feel the same. How much time 
or money we spend on ourselves, how much we try to impress others with ourselves, how much our motives, our desires, our dreams are about ourselves. Like the voices around us just magnify this, right? They constantly tell us to to live for and take care of ourselves. But if Jesus is our Lord, then we've already been claimed as his own and we're to live for him now. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. When God reigns over us in eternity, this new orientation in life will be perfected. We'll be His servants, wholly devoted to Him. We will worship Him wholeheartedly. I long for that undivided heart, don't you? And one day that'll be us. But even today, we can begin to live for him and serve him and worship him. Not like we will then, but we still can do this. So I ask you, is your life beginning to be defined by these things already? How might a a servant of Jesus stand out in our self-centered world today? What might you do? The second part of our reshaped identity can be seen in verse 4. Verse 4 says, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. I'm going to come back to the first part of that verse, but for now focus on his name will be on their foreheads. We've already seen this idea before in Revelation more than once. For instance, in chapter 14, it says the Lamb's people, Jesus' people, will have his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. But this image actually goes way further back than that. In Exodus 28, Aaron, the first high priest, was given a a turban to wear with with the words, Holy to the Lord, written across it. Holy to the Lord. In other words, having God's name on our foreheads is a priestly sign of ownership. We belong to him. We're set apart by him. We're holy to him, holy like him. We're consecrated for his purposes. It's also a sign of how much he loves us and how protected we will be by him. Think about it. Is there anything of yours that you've written your name on? Might we do it with books, toys, and clothes, backpacks, purses, suitcases, carrying our stuff? And we stamp our identity on things that we value, saying, this is mine. I heard this illustration from Matt Smethurst who explains, this is a picture of God stamping his very identity on his people, saying publicly and proudly, you're mine. I own you. I am not ashamed to call you my brothers. And this becomes even more beautiful as we realize how unlike God we are. Like, think, maybe think of when one of your friends does something super embarrassing. Or parents, think of your kids throwing a tantrum out in public. In those moments, are you wanting to be identified with them? 
No. You want to hide. You want to crawl into the ground. Like, you want to act like, they're not my friend or not my kid. But if we belong to Jesus, no matter how sinful, shameful, disappointing we've been at times, God has claimed us and will not be ashamed to publicly own us and identify with us. Wow. I wonder, whose name are you bearing today? Who does your life say you belong to today? Finally, look at verse 5, where we'll again focus on the second half of the verse. It says, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, this might be really surprising here, as we have been talking about God's reign this whole time. You'd expect this passage to end with, and he shall reign forever and ever. But no. Instead, it says, they will reign forever and ever. Why? God reshapes our identity so much from sinful enemies to beloved sons and daughters. And who are the children of a king? They're royalty as well. We don't deserve this at all. It's totally grace. But God's rule means our glory as well. He, he reshapes us to be like him. We'll reign with Christ, representing him, sharing his dominion over the world forever. Again, it takes us back to Eden. God created Adam and Eve to exercise dominion and authority over the earth. We abdicated, abandoned that role. Here, God restores it forever. I, I don't know all that will be involved in reigning under Jesus, but I can't wait to find out. And don't worry, we will not steal any of God's glory by reigning under his universal reign. Because there's one final truth of, about God's reign that we see in this passage. Probably the most important point of all. That God's eternal reign will restore his centrality and sufficiency. God's eternal reign will restore his own centrality and sufficiency. He'll be central and he'll be sufficient. We've already seen how his throne is absolutely central in the holy city, in the garden of God. We've already seen how everything we need will be provided by him. But those first five words of verse 4 point to his central place like nothing else. Where it says, they will see his face. This statement is arguably the climax or pinnacle of the entire Bible. They will see his face. See, after the fall, we as humanity lost the intimate relationship that we had with God. And once we're stained by sin, we cannot see God in his holiness and live to tell the tale. You remember the story of Moses asking God to... Show me your glory. 
What did God tell him? He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God then let Moses see him from behind, but reiterated, my face shall not be seen. When Isaiah, Ezekiel, or others got glimpses of God, it was always limited, vague in some ways. Same with John earlier in Revelation. None of them described God's face. They will see his face. How is that even possible? It's unthinkable. We'll see God's face and we won't die? Daryl Johnson wonders, can it really be? Can it really be that faith shall have become sight and we will see the face of God? Astonishingly, astoundingly, the answer is yes. John wrote elsewhere, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So how will we be able to do this? It's because we will have been purified, holified, glorified. There will no longer be anything accursed, even in us. And once sin is eliminated from the equation, we can experience God the way we were always intended to, face to face. The high priestly blessing of number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Finds its ultimate fulfillment here where they will see his face. That will no longer be a prayer or a hope, but a reality. We'll have unheard of direct access to an intimacy with our Father God. We'll be like the tulips. You've all seen at the Tulip Festival with our petals opening up, unfolding, reaching toward the sunlight. Like those tulips, or all flowers really are created for sunlight. We were created for God. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee. We will bask in God's glory and soak in his life-giving presence. Speaking of which, verse 5, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Talked about God's light last week, how it displays his brilliant glory. So what's the point of bringing it up again? I believe it's to show his absolute sufficiency. In eternity, God's reign will provide our food and drink and health and light. In other words, God gives us everything. We'll never need anything else. 
God and the Lamb are at the center of heaven, and God is all we'll ever need. Really, this new garden of God will be even greater than Eden. Like in Eden, they still depended on the sun and the moon and natural rivers and trees. And what we see here will be more than just paradise regained after paradise was lost. It will be a new, transformed, a true and better Garden of Eden. Where a river of life grows trees of life to sustain eternal life, which will be lived in the light of life from the God of all life. Our world may be a broken, cursed mess right now. But that is not how things are meant to be. This is how things are meant to be. And much more importantly and wonderfully, this is how things are going to be. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. My only question for you as we conclude is this. Do you long for this? Do you long for this? I was personally convicted by something I heard David Kamara say here on this passage. He said, is there any stirring in your soul for heaven? Any longing in your heart? Or is the absolute God-centered nature of heaven kind of a disappointment? Is the absolute God-centered nature of heaven kind of a disappointment? Some of us conceive of heaven as the ultimate travel brochure, the things that you find in a rest stop or something. Huh? Well, this is heaven. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then he asks, do you think of heaven in terms of your own enjoyment? Do we conceive of heaven with ourselves at the center? Certainly at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore to enjoy. We will enjoy them. But our primary focus and singular enjoyment will be the presence of God. If you have that kind of longing to experience this new creation, it is a sign that you are a new creation, that you already are part of the new creation now. Do you get that? that? Even as we long for this, anticipate this, wait for this, there is a sense in which we begin to experience God's new creation now. Because if anyone is in Christ... They are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. One day we will experience that reality and 
exponentially greater ways. Because now, we see as in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Glory to God. Heavenly Father, we do long for this. Our hearts want to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray for that now. In Jesus' name.